You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses and you find, you may not ignore it. You shall see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them, shall not see. You shall help him to lift them up again. We are still in the section of Deuteronomy concerning specific prohibitions. The early chapters were giving us broad principles that Moses is asking the people to follow as they enter the promised land. He will not be going in with them. And chapter 12 through 26 focuses on specific prohibitions. So we have a lot of chapters like this one where there will be a lot of different things that Moses addresses. And then in chapter 27, he'll begin to discuss the blessings and curses that go along with keeping this law. And this first section that we see here is, is pretty simple, that the Hebrews were to help each other by returning each other's property when they found it and assisting each other on the side of the road. Now, we think about the Old Testament law, and sometimes it's intimidating for us because we think, how does this apply to me? How do I understand what he's trying to get at? You know, I don't even own an ox. I don't know anybody who has a donkey. So how is this supposed to apply to me? Well, this is actually pretty simple to understand. And while the setting is different, the, the farm animals really shouldn't raise up a barrier for us. That if you see somebody who has lost something and you find it, give it back. That's pretty straightforward, right? If you see somebody whose dog has run away or see somebody's child who is wandering around maybe, or if they drop their wallet, pick it up and give it back. Or if you find something you don't know whose it is, hold on to it until you find out whose it is. Uh, same thing if you see somebody on the side of the road. He says, if you see somebody that is, you know, trying to lift their donkey out of a pit or something like that, or their cart has turned over, stop over and help them. I mean, you see people with a flat tire. You see somebody that uh, car is broken down. You can at least pull over and say, do you need any help? And just because we have cell phones and AAA and all that doesn't mean that you can't do something. So it's good to be, to have your eyes open, you know, and to, to be participating in the community that's around you. This is a pretty simple law. But sometimes the law of God corrects not only our behavior within a system, but corrects the system itself. This first section has been, if you see somebody who has something and it gets lost, help them find it. That fits into our system pretty well, right? We understand that people need help. But what we're going to see in these chapters, there are many instructions that don't just attack the way we operate within our system, but they attack the system we've set up itself, or at least the one that we're fighting over. Especially in these chapters, there are instructions related to sexuality, to gender, and to marriage, many of which fly right in the face of our own culture. And this is not even going to be correcting specific things so much, as much as the, the framework that is described is so different from our own that even the, the very framework in which we think and act is going to receive deeper correction from the Word of God. At the very least, tell us to hold on to some of these things a little looser. There's an important lesson that unless we allow God to teach us the right questions, we'll never be able to accept His answers. Maybe you've had a discussion with somebody that doesn't know the Lord and they ask a question and you give it to them and they can't wrap their head around it. And that's because you need to have this conversation three or four steps back. That you don't even understand what we mean when we say love or what we mean when we say marriage or what we mean when we say Jesus Christ. 
And some of that is what we're going to have to do today. And I do not believe that there's anybody in here that needs to specifically be corrected by these things. But because we are assailed on every side by a lot of this stuff, hopefully this will remind us of the truth and give us uh, something to say should it come up in our own lives again. And we're going to spend a lot of our time here in verse 5, which has an awful lot to say to our modern day. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. I'm sure when this was first written down, and in fact for the vast majority of human history, this seemed like a rather obvious and innocuous commandment. One of those, that's pretty straightforward, gentlemen, I guess we can move on. Don't dress up like a lady, and ladies don't dress up like a man. However, we are living in the days where it's a pretty good thing that God said that, as obvious as it seems. I don't need to spend a lot of time telling you about the invasive doctrines of transgenderism that have taken hold in our own society. And you might even be sick of hearing about all this stuff. That's the way that some people try to get you to uh, give in. Is, Aren't you tired of talking about this stuff? Well, we're teaching verse by verse through the Bible, and here it is. So we're going to talk about it. Even the Secretary of Education of the United States is a man that acts and dresses and demands that people refer to him as a woman. This is not some fringe thing any longer. The Internet has brought these very odd and very strange and and very wicked ideas to lots of people, especially to young people. It's being taught as doctrine. I'm going to use that word doctrine in most introductory courses when people are required to go to college and they take those freshman seminar classes and people are believing them to the point now that even federal documents and even things that are official and, and usually would be neutral on these things are being made and required to accommodate these things. Even in our entertainment, which might seem like it's not very important in the broad picture, and maybe it shouldn't be, is where a lot of us take our cues for certain things. It's simply everywhere that a man can identify as a woman, begin acting and dressing and talking like a woman, even have surgery to be made to look like a woman, and demand that everybody else fall in line. And of course, vice versa for women as men. Now, this kind of thing is so strange It's really very hard to have a ready answer for it because it's so basic and it's so ingrained not only in our DNA, but in our our culture and not just our culture, every culture. It's amazing that in the the Anglican church, for example, uh, the people that are pushing back on all the crazy gender ideology are the African churches. All these people that want to talk about how Western colonialism has dominated the globe and therefore we've got to have more trans stuff. Well, the so-called colonized nations are digging their heels in and you see how much they actually care about such an opinion when all that happens. But let me take you back a little bit to explain where all of this comes from. And I'm sure many of you are very educated on these things. I'm not really trying to come at this from a political perspective because it's much more important than that. This doctrine of transgenderism is just the the brightest and strangest flare-up of postmodernism. Maybe a few years ago you remember when the church was talking an awful lot about this, when the emergent church thing was going on, when Rob Bell was doing his little song and dance, and that was something that was talked about a lot. And I remember reading books by D.A. Carson and some of these guys warning us about postmodernism and reading the book and not being able to make heads or tails of it. Like, this is so bizarre. And thinking, even in some cases, there's no way somebody would actually believe this. 
right? When people would say things like, watch out, people are going to come in and they're going to say, there is no truth, there's only my truth. And we would laugh and scoff and make fun of that. Well, it's not so funny anymore, is it? Because you see it everywhere. You even hear it from certain pulpits, certain counselors that want to teach the church that you've got to not deny somebody's truth as if that was something that we found in Scripture. Postmodernism, if, if modernism is defined as rigid, scientific, factual method, which was the battle of the, of the last few generations, postmodernism is the denial of fact, the denial of truth, and even the denial of communication and words. Now you might think to yourself, how can somebody deny something that basic? Well, you think yourself long enough into a hole and that's where you get. A true blue postmodernist, and most folks you run into are not gonna be this philosophically into it. Although if you listen closely, you can hear some of these people tip their hand. Postmodernism believes there is no such thing as fact. And if there is such a thing as fact, we are incapable of knowing it. Because everything that we know is filtered through our own experience. So you have never encountered something neutrally. You've only encountered it through your own bias and through your own preference. Now we might say, well, why does that preclude us from being able to know the truth? Because the, the postmodernist next step is to say, not only has everything you've ever experienced been because of bias, you are incapable of overcoming that bias. Ken Ham loves to talk about the glasses you wear when you read scripture, right? A postmodernist would say, you are incapable of taking off those glasses for the rest of your life. This is why people will say things like, you will never be able to understand me. Now that sounds like a jerky thing to say. What they mean by that is, since you haven't lived behind my eyes, you'll never be able to understand what I've experienced. They also deny truth. But that's true. If we can't even know what the facts are, we can't even know what the truth is. So we can't talk about the truth. We can talk about my truth. This is why we're actually going to talk about this a little later. When, when there was that big hubbub about different people accusing certain men of, of sexual assault and rape. And in some of these cases, the men would come out and they'd say, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's not how it happened. That's not how it went down. And very often what you would hear is people would say, stop denying her lived experience. And we would, you know, most people would say, well, hold on, what really happened? For a postmodernist, it doesn't matter what really happened. Well, the only thing that exists is how she remembers it. And you might say, that's ridiculous. Well, it is ridiculous. But it's dangerous, too, when more, enough people start believing it. There is no such thing as fact. There is no such thing as truth. And there is especially no such thing as communication. Really, at the basis of all of this is postmodernism denies the utility of language. That all language is socially constructed, meaning there is no basic sound that everybody uses. It's only culture. Therefore, when I talk to you, I really can't talk to you because it's my thoughts coming out of my sounds that are coming into your ears and being interpreted as something else. So there's really no way of talking to each other, which affects the scripture in ways we can say, therefore, you can't even know what John wanted you to say because it's impossible to know what John wanted to say. And so a real postmodernist is in a really serious place because, you know, it's ironic how, many, how long these books are that they write about how you cannot understand words. I don't, I don't think that they uh, really care too much about the irony, but the rest of us notice that. But what happens is somebody takes pieces of those ideas, or even a lot of those ideas, 
and they begin to apply it to the social and the political sphere. And now this person is not so worried about being consistent as much as they are as using these things as ammunition to get what they want. So let's apply this to transgenderism now. There is no such thing as fact. So, you know, you, you perceive me as male or female, but that doesn't mean anything. I can be anything because all we know is what we've always said. And how do we know that we're not wrong? This is where the phrase assigned at birth comes from. You heard that one? Well, what was the sex you were assigned at birth? Like, I wasn't assigned anything. They pulled the baby out and said, it's a boy. And, and so for a postmodernist, there's, there's no objective, objectivity there. That's what they said about me. And that's all that they care about. Say, well, therefore, I could be something else. On the inside, my experience is all that matters. My experience is all that matters. If I perceive myself as a woman, even though I was born in a male body, actually, I am a woman. This is where you get that whole trans women are women thing. That they, you must say that, right? You have to say that and believe that and affirm that. Even though we go, this is so bizarre and so strange. Because for them, reality is only what comes out of your mouth and what you say and what you affirm. My existence can only be determined by me. This is why... We wonder, how can one person expect millions of people to adjust the way they speak for them? Because for them, you, the rest of you might not even exist for all I know. And also, when you talk about this too much, it might violate my lived experience and I might feel really bad about that. And then, you know, you're denying my truth, which of course is the ultimate sin because there is no truth. For you to deny somebody else's truth is oppression. And that's where, you know, some of the Marxist bit comes in there where it's like, actually, you know, it's not just socially constructed, it's somebody forcing it upon you. That's why it's all gotta be broken apart. Everything has to be broken because it's only there because of some evil person that put it there. It's also where the language comes in. You have to use my pronouns. And we say like, I'm not gonna do that, that's ridiculous. And they say, why is it a big deal to you? We go, why is it a big deal? Because it's, it's, it's the language. But for them, language is malleable anyway. Language is whatever you make it. This is why activists fight so hard to relativize the language that we use. We don't wanna say mother, some of these are ridiculous, right? We don't wanna say mother, we wanna say birthing person. Because mother is an objective category. And they might say, well, we can objectively determine that you gave birth, but that doesn't necessarily say anything about you. Now, it, is, it is risible. We should laugh at this because it, it, it's ridiculous. This is why how you identify matters. How are you perceiving yourself? Tell me so that I can perceive you that way. And of course, when people have a particularly violent and angry sort of temperament, they begin to push that on people. They begin to say, you're going to have to do this. If you ever want to wonder what does a, a postmodernist believe, go watch the movie The Matrix. That is exactly what that is. Two transgender people made that movie. You think you're okay, but actually you're asleep because everything that's around you, even categories like male and female, those are all just, just part of the programming. And you're only going to be free when you break out of the programming and you take a new name and you find out you're free and you can do whatever you want. But everybody else is so dependent on the system, they're going to try to stop you. And so, you know, when you realize that that was made by two transgender individuals who are neck deep in that stuff, it's like, well, you can understand where this comes from. The theorists, therefore, who come to the matter of male and female will separate into three categories 
what a person is. There's the biological sex, the gender expression, and the gender identity. They split those three things up. The biological sex is your DNA, your body, you know, they'll say what you were assigned at birth. I might say assigned by God at birth, and as long as we're saying that, that's fine. But your body, that's the first one, your, your biological sex. Gender identity is how you personally identify. So, you know, we have gender categories that, you know, this is how men act, this is how women act. Well, it doesn't matter what my body is, how I choose to identify, that's what I am. They also then have gender expression, which is how you live out that gender. Men wear suits, women wear dresses. So you can have somebody, this is why, you can have somebody who is biologically male, expresses themselves as biologically male, and yet identifies as a woman. This is because all those three things are separate. Now, if you're analyzing a culture, there may be some utility in that. And saying, okay, so these are the men and women. This is how they tend to live out what male and female looks like. And up to this point, it's a pretty interesting anthropological study, right? In Polynesian cultures, the guys tend to get tattoos and the girls wear grass skirts. In European countries, the women wear long gowns and the men wear suits with little ties tied around their neck. But what they then do is they say, these things are not just observations. These are ontological categories, which means a category of being. They exist, that they are as real as the category of man and woman are. And that's the leap that is, that is not so good. They say, well, your biological sex, gender identity, and gender expression have nothing to do with each other necessarily. That's why you have a million different genders, because you have all the different combinations of these things. And that's where you get the, the weird unicorn rainbow that they try to show to children sometimes. However, just because you can identify something does not make it ontologically legitimate. This is a classic academic mistake. An academic will define something, describe something, publish a paper on it, and then assume that that's just the way it is. I'll give you an example. Many times in Christian circles, we lay hands on somebody, they're healed of cancer. And so we say, hey, the Lord healed them. Well, certain people come along and say, that wasn't healing. That was rapid, spontaneous remission. And we go, what are you talking about? Well, the, when the cancer just disappears. Like, okay, you may have a name for it, but you haven't explained how it works or why it works. But that, that, because it's defined and there's a paper about it, look, there's a book right here, then it must be real. You know, we might say those three things that I described are helpful in describing a culture or describing a person, but that doesn't mean that there are three separate things floating around and that everybody can pick and choose what they are. In fact, the Bible tells us that all three of those things, using their terms here, are to be united into one thing. I actually have three Bible verses for this that you probably want to take notes on, that if you ever come across this, here's your answers. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Say that last bit again. Male and female, he created them. Immediately, we can see that God created that dreaded gender binary that people love to howl about so much. God made it that way. And everybody knows that God made it that way. You have to be educated into believing stuff like this. The gender or the sexual binary, really is we shouldn't try to break those two apart, but I'm going to use those terms interchangeably tonight. God created that way, male and female. In the Garden of Eden, God created Adam and Eve, and that's it. 
And that's how every other animal in the creation works. That's how culture has recognized it. We have boys and girls, men and women, husbands and wives, sons and daughters. That's how God made it. That's biological sex. We affirm that God created two. Now, some people will come in and say, well, what about people who are intersex? Which would be a person who was born with a birth defect in which they were born with uh, both sets of genitalia. I don't think that that incredibly, infinitesimally small exception should disprove the rule. And also, if you do your homework on that, you find that when certain people grow up, very often it, it turns out that one or the other is, is dominant and, in fact, primary in their body. So just because somebody is born different, and it's a, like a fraction of a fraction of a percent here, does not deny the rule, which is that God made them male and female. Then in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 14 through 15, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he says this statement in passing, which is very important. He said, does not nature itself teach you? What teach you? Nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. What is his point? Paul says, nature, meaning the way you were born, male or female, sets certain expectations about how you're going to conduct yourselves and present yourself in the future. That if we're going to use the terminology of, of this ideology, your gender is tied to your sex and is expected by God to line up with the sex that you were born with. That a man who is born a man is to, if we want to use that dreaded term that I hate so much, identify as a man and act like a man. And this is what is called in certain circles biological essentialism. You can hear how this came out of the university, can't you? Who talks like that? Biological essentialism, which means if you're a born a man, you have to live like a man. If somebody says, well, are you that? The answer is yes. Sometimes we got to stop, you know, hemming and hawing on the answer to some of these questions. You know what I mean? Oh, so you believe that your gender has to be tied to your sex? Yes. Yes, I do, because that's what Paul teaches us. I mean, obviously, it's, well, how do, you, how do you know which is which? One of these things is objective, and one of them is in your head. So how about we look to the one that's objective and start from that? This, the Bible makes us whole people. God created us to be a living soul with a body. He doesn't separate us out like that. And then the third one is in our text tonight. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. So God creates us with the nature of a man or a woman. That nature tells us that we are to act, therefore, as a man or a woman. And then this here tells us that we are to express our gender in accordance with the created order. It's really interesting to me how the Lord set this up. These three different categories. First one is biological. God created them, male and female. The second one is your identity. Well, Paul tells us that nature itself determines what your identity ought to be. And then in Deuteronomy 22, Moses tells us that the way you live out that gender is to be tied to the way God made you. To fail to do so is an abomination to the Lord. And a society should not tolerate it. I'm just going to say this because it's getting out of hand. And I realize I'm speaking to a bunch of people that I believe would largely agree with me on all these things. But this is not something that we have to put up with, even as Americans that believe in freedom and liberty. And I recognize that this lie has deceived many, many people. 
especially young folks, especially young folks spend a lot of time online, especially a lot of young folks that spend a lot of time watching pornography, that these things draw you towards this direction. And then when you have friends that you love dearly and have known since you were five years old that start acting this way, you love them so much that you feel like you have to affirm them in order to continue to love them. But it is an abomination to allow these things. And what I will tell a transgender individual who feels like they were born in the wrong body and there's something wrong about their identity and they need a new name, you're right. But you're only going to find those things in Christ Jesus, who's going to lead you to the resurrection of your body. And when you get to heaven, he's going to have a new name written on a white stone that nobody will know but you and him. He knows you even as you are known. And the danger of affirming somebody in their transgenderism is you are implicitly telling them, yes, you are a freak. Yes, you were born in the wrong body. I've always known there was something wrong about you. So what you need is drastic surgery and endocrine treatments to change you. That sinks deep into a person, even if they don't realize it right away. Because most of these people, they're, I mean, they're 17, 18, 19 years old. Do you remember you when you were 17, 18, 19? Haven't you woken up when you were 25, 30, 40 and said, what was I thinking? Even about stuff that is not that big a deal. But while it is a very painful and hard thing, I would imagine for somebody to go through that. We as a congregation and me as your pastor, I'm at the point where I am ready to reject the myth of the poor put upon homosexual. Because that's always what's thrown in our face is you say that, well, these poor people, they don't feel loved. They don't want to come to Jesus because you don't love them. And they're going to go to hell because they don't want to come to church because they know they won't be accepted. I don't buy that. I don't. Because they've been saying it since the 60s and 70s, and the church has gone along with it. And the minute it gets in the door, they start reaching in and changing things. And then they get a little bit of power, and they turn their guns on the church and say, you change or we're coming for you. This group is influential. It is powerful. It is well-funded. It is vicious. And the time has passed for us to stop, be making nice about abominations before the Lord. And I realize this might make some of us uncomfortable because we're conditioned to think that. We think, well, we've got to love them with all of our hearts and then maybe gently, kindly tell them. Nobody in this camp is saying anything kindly and gently anymore. If you have somebody that you know personally, you handle that as best you know according to the, sermon that, the discernment that God gives you. But people are willing to use the goodwill and kindness of the church in order to elbow their way in to start making decisions and laws and policies. And it's got to stop. It has got to stop. You know, something we learn, here's, here you hear a lot. You say, well, don't you know that if you don't affirm these people and their identity, that they're going to commit suicide? I learned something in high school ministry. If a kid ever threatens to, to kill themselves, if you don't do something, you absolutely do not go along with it, ever. Because that, first of all, teaches this kid to be incredibly manipulative, and also it's not fair to you to do that. I mean, if a boyfriend does that to a girl, if you, if you ever leave me, I think I'll kill myself. What do you tell that girl? Get out of there, sweet pea, he's not good for you. So when you got a whole movement of people saying, change everything you know about male and female or little kids might kill themselves, I'm sorry, we're not going along with that. That's bullying. That's not how good people do things. And also, that rate does not change after the transition, but nobody ever wants to talk about that. 40% suicide rate. 
Well, that's because they, the society doesn't accept them. Or maybe it's because they wake up a few years later and realize that what they did is to completely mutilate their body, change everything about themselves. They still don't feel better. And now look what I've done. Also fails to acknowledge that there is a large percentage of people that engage in this that have some kind of mental retardation. And that's something that we have got to be able to talk about and not get all awkward and weird. That there are certain people that already don't feel like they belong. So they find this group over here that tells them, we'll celebrate you and throw confetti and parades and all you got to do is go through this thing. The erosion of our society is accelerating and you've got to start pushing back with just some common sense Bible here, you guys. Activists love to take hold of words that we all understand, redefine them, and then push back on you. The classic one, it's the same line of thinking, but it's a different area, is people that redefine words like racist or words like woman or words like marriage. They redefine it according to their weird ivory tower theories. And then they come and they insist that if you do something that is not in accordance with the agreement we've all agreed upon, you're now guilty of this thing. They take advantage of the weight and the authority that we assign to words like racist or woman or marriage in order to bludgeon people over the head with it. And I'm not going to do this anymore. Not that I have been before, but we've just got to be able to say, look, no, this isn't happening. It's not happening here. We're not okay with it. And also, I will say this, I'm not going to stand against transgenderism alongside the homosexual or the fornicator. Yeah, those guys are crazy. And I, I, you see this all the time, gays against you know, grooming, or trans kids and stuff. It's like, you guys are the ones that let the fox into this hen house. Well, we're not trying to do that. What you've done is just as wicked and just as bizarre and just as crazy. And maybe this is how the devil wants to do it. Ratchet it so far forward that when we bring it back, we'll be at a place that is way too far forward, but at least it's not that over there. Or people that want to say, yeah, I don't like transgenderism. We should be able to have as much sex as we want. Well, I'm not standing next to you either. Because that's wrong too. It's all of a piece. And you know, great men of God in the, in the 20th century, guys like Jerry Falwell, Adrian Rogers, Bill Bright, they warned about this stuff, James Dobson. They said, we let this homosexual thing go, the divorce thing go, the fornication thing go. We're going to get to a place where male and female doesn't even mean anything anymore. And they were called bigots, and they were called liars, and they were called terrible people, and they were put on hate lists, and they were called terrorists and all this other stuff. Well, it turns out they were prophets. They knew what they were talking about. They'll say, where was the church when all this went down? We was hollering. Nobody listened. Nobody listened. And now, of course, everybody, whoa, whoa, but this is, but, but no to, to pedophilia. That's where we absolutely draw the line. Listen, guys. If a child can consent to change their gender at six years old, the next thing they'll push for is, well, a child can consent to sex at that point too. How do we know this? Well, because it's a very disturbing and evil trend that a lot of the people that push all this same stuff end up getting caught for some sort of sexual abuse of a child. And it's obvious to the average person that watches this, but when you hear a lot of loud people on a TV screen telling you not to think that, you can think, well, maybe I'm the crazy one. Don't be made to feel insane about normal, godly truth. Say, no, I, I'm not, I don't know how to answer this question because that is such an insane question. I'm not even going to deal with this. You know, this is why you get guys going around asking the most basic questions to these things, right? Can you define what a woman is? Can you define what sex is? Can you explain this to me? And they can't. 
And they get upset that you'd even ask them about that. And they get offended and walk away. Why? Because they've got a completely different worldview than you do. You're asking on the basis of fact and truth. They don't believe those things even exist. What has the church got to do? We've got to continue to strongly support manhood and womanhood without compromise. I've said a lot. Church should have the most masculine men and the most feminine women you can find anywhere. And we've got to not let ourselves compromise at some stage down the line. So, well, you know, none of that. Yeah, no trans stuff, uh, no homosexuality stuff. And yeah, but I still think that, you know, women should be able to be pastors and be able to lead the home. And, and all that stuff that Paul said isn't any good either. Guys, it's all the same thing. It's all the same path that we've been walking down that we're not going to let the Bible tell us about how sex, gender, and marriage ought to be lived out. And here we have made it a, a firm stand and we are grateful to live in a place where we are largely in the mainstream, and I thank God for that. But we ought to be reminded that this is not just something that we don't like culturally. We stand against it because it is abomination according to the scriptures. Amen? So not a, not a super pleasant topic, I know, but it needs to be talked about. We're going to move on now, and, and we will return to kind of sort of this, this topic, but... I want to make sure we can get through the rest of this, although that's where I wanted to spend the majority of our time. Verse 6. If you come across a bird's nest, little change of gears there, huh? <laughs> in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or in the eggs, I come across one of those in my carport every single year. You shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself that it may go well with you and that you may live long. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house, if anyone should fall from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. You shall make yourself tassels in the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. Uh, there is a broad theme that Moses is following here, but mostly these are, are various laws. But the, if you want to get a big through line, he's talking about not mixing things that shouldn't be mixed. And that's where we started with male and female is the biggest one. Um, he tells him to show kindness to a mother bird. He says, you know, if you're going to find a mother with eggs, you can take the eggs, but leave the mother. Because the mother can reproduce again. And uh, that just would be a mean thing to do. So a hunter's rule might be, if you see my mama with a baby fawn, let him go. Everybody loves to talk about hunters as like these, you know, cackling guys with 12 guns. But it's like, even we know, hey, let the baby go, right? Proverbs 12.10 says, the righteous man has regard for the life of his beast, but even the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Also, they will show kindness to each other through common sense safety measures. Have a railing on your flat roof. So... That's your biblical mandate for things like seat belts and traffic lights and uh, OSHA, I suppose. Just make sure that if you've got, if you own the place, you need to put in some safety measures for the people that are there. Now, how that plays out in the details is a lively debate you can have at the city hall, I suppose. <laughs> now, verses 9 through 11 contains prohibitions about mixing what should not be mixed, right? So you have... The vineyard with two kinds of seed, plowing with an ox and a donkey, not wearing two kinds of cloth at one time. Uh, this reminds us that categories that God has created must be honored and maintained. So this sort of not mixing even the animals you're plowing with might seem a little, 
uh, bizarre to our ears. But what God is trying to communicate is, listen, there are distinctions and separations between things that you are not to blend and mix. I think primarily here, uh, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. That I've called you out to be separate, and you need to stay separate and stay holy. We can apply that to the Christian life. But also, I mean, there's broader things even than that. We just talked about, you know, manhood and womanhood and even some of the laws that we have and some of the things we've learned through history. Proverbs 22, 28 says, Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. I'm already not going to get into it too much anymore, but these critical theories that I talked about, you know, they infect everything. If you believe that everything is a result of the bias of the powerful, then you're going to try to tear down everything because everything is evil. But that is such a terrible way to go about it. That's what the worst dictators of history did. You know, the, the men that said, we're going to burn all the books from before I came to power because history will start with me. You know, the, the arrogance of that. The Bible tells us to respect what has been learned from those that have gone before. It's okay to evaluate it and question it for a new age and bring it to the word of God, but you should not be quick to change things that have stood for a long time. And this thing about tassels in the four corners of the garment was to remind them that they were separate. And also I read one guy that thought it might have something to do with modesty as well, although I'm not really convinced about that. Verse 13, if any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her saying, I took this woman and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house." So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Another set of laws related to sex and marriage. The following verse will be related to that too. We have a man who comes to hate his wife for some reason. Happens sometimes. And so he decides I'm going to falsely accuse her of infidelity before our wedding night. And this is a process that they were to follow to protect the honor of this woman. By the evidence of virginity, this is likely referring to a cloak or a cloth which would be bloodstained. This is maybe not something we talk about in mixed company, but I want you to understand the scriptures. What the tradition was at this time, as best we can tell, is that there would be a certain ceremonial cloak or robe that would be placed on top of the marriage bed. When the couple consummated their wedding, if the woman was truly a virgin, in most, most cases, most scenarios, there would be bleeding that took place. And they would keep that cloak and keep it in the house as an evidence that she was, in fact, a virgin when she was married. That's not a very scientific method of going about these things. However, we always tend to look back at people that lived a long time ago and think of them as a bunch of idiot savages that didn't know what they were talking about. I am inclined to think that they had this process pretty well figured out. You can see that the men and the women were both involved. And also, because the women were married so much younger back then, and because the idea of sleeping around before you got married was absolutely forbidden, then this would have been the case 
in most times. So this is what it means by the evidence of her virginity. But if, if he was falsely accusing his wife, her parents would bring this out to the elders and show them the cloak, it says. And in such a case, the man would be publicly beaten and fined a hundred shekels of silver, which I read was twice the usual bride price. So he's got to pray for her twice over again. And the man could not shame his wife further by divorcing her. So you hate this woman so much, well, now you've got to pay for her twice more and you have to stay with her the rest of your life. But if she was guilty, she would be stoned. Of course, our society approves of sex before marriage, and we hate the idea of any kind of shame related to sex. And even people today hate virginity and the idea of family. I saw a thing online not long ago where a bunch of women were shrieking about how virginity is just a concept made up by men in order to oppress women. I don't see how exactly it's a made-up concept, but there it is. And they're working hard to make us change our mind on these things. We must remember Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. So if you hear somebody talking about how really marriage is, has been a pretty bad deal for most of history, watch out for that person. Because they didn't get that from Scripture, I'll tell you that much. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. There's actually a remarkable movement online right now of not Christian men calling out these ridiculous social changes that a woman should be allowed to sleep around and call herself a slut. And you know, this is not my words, these are their words. And go around dressed however she wants and sleep with whoever she wants. And men just have to be okay with that. Well, a lot of guys have stepped up and saying, this is ridiculous. We want women to be pure. We want them to be virgins. We want them to be mothers. We want them to take care of our children. And you acting like that is not, is not going to work out for you. However, we can add to this, without responsibility on both sides of that equation, you're just going to be led into another kind of terrible excess. Some of those guys will also say along those lines, men are just hardwired to have lots of sex and, and women aren't. It's like, all right, pal, well, you know, you've, you've got a long way to go here still. Yes, we all, yeah, she ought to be pure and ought to be virginal when you guys come together, but so should you, right? You, you guys should learn these things and grow in these things together. And if you've never had any sexual encounters before you're married, then guess what? The only ones you're going to know are the person that you're with forever. God has given us the family. He's given us marriage. And you know what? Shame and honor need to be associated with these things. There needs to be honor for couples that stay together, that stay faithful to each other, and we should recognize that and honor that. And there should be shame associated with those that are going to be fornicators, those are going to be adulterous, those that are going to parade themselves in an immodest way, male or female. We've got to cultivate the right ideas about these things that are given to us in Scripture. Verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin, so she's engaged now, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. There you go. The Bible compares rape to murder. 
because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and he, she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. A man shall not, verse 30, take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. These laws are about a betrothed virgin. Uh, this was a very serious concept back in the day. There was money that exchanged hands. There were ceremonies. And in, in biblical life, to cheat on your fiancé was considered full-on adultery. And so much more than our engagement today, which is he bought me a ring and we set a date for a wedding. Not that that's not important too, but it was more serious at the time. Well, such a woman committed sexual immorality. Both parties were to be stoned, which is why... In Matthew chapter 1, Joseph decided to divorce Mary quietly so that she would not be guilty of adultery and therefore have to be stoned for the virgin birth. But a woman who was raped would not be punished. Instead, the man would be stoned to death. And the key in, dis in distinguishing whether it was rape or consensual was whether she cried for help. Otherwise, how could the truth be known? Uh, you hear this an awful lot that you should believe every woman that brings an accusation of rape. That is not how the Bible, Bible puts it. Not because it minimizes that, but because the sin of rape is so grievous that to accuse somebody of it falsely, like was done to Joseph, is almost equivalent to the act itself. You know what the Bible says? If you bring an accusation against somebody, the charge that you wanted for them, if it's a false charge, it would be done to you. So, if she didn't say anything at the time, the Bible says, then how are we supposed to know that you were not just saying this later in order to cover it up? And we see that the rapist would be required to marry the woman if she was not engaged. Now our stomach turns when we read that. What woman would want that? Well, you've got to read this more carefully. These are two things to consider. Number one, it is not mandating that they have to get married but it is stripping the man of all rights related to that relationship moving forward. You have shamed her. You can either make an honest woman out of her or you can die. Those are your choices. And if, the, if she and her father decided, no, we don't want to marry him, well, that was their decision, not his. Such a woman would have a hard time finding a husband. And marriage was also much more transactional at this time. This is our second thing. You know, we might say, well, who would do that's such a terrible thing. Well, all I can say is that the Bible says an awful lot about being the right person in marriage, not so much about how that marriage is to come about. And that it was so transactional at this point from all sides. It wasn't just the, the man buying the woman. Like, that's how it's often portrayed. It, there was, everybody was involved in this decision here. That, you know, it could be that the woman said, you know what? As shameful as this was, it's not likely to get any better for me. So I'm going to stay with you and you're going to have to take care of me. I can divorce you whenever I want and you don't have that same right. The point is that a man that did this kind of thing has no rights as far as God is concerned before the law. And then verse 30 prohibits the marriage of a son and his stepmother, which of course would be a shameful thing. Although, you know, at the I want to remain discreet and I want to remain careful that some of these things that we're reading about are... Are, are common tropes related to you know, certain people and, and the pornography that they watch. And we've got to remember that when we, well, I think when we talk about homosexuality and we talk about adultery and we talk about these things, we can kind of forget the role that porn plays in that. That it, it cultivates the tastes and the desires and the hungers of these people, men and women both. 
and it drives them to, to these terrible places. So it doesn't matter where the nudge is coming from. Do not allow yourself to give in to these, these vile things. Verses 1 through 8. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek the peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother, a descendant of Esau. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you are a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. So these verses describe who may or may not enter the house of God, specifically the outer court. Only Hebrew men could go into the inner court where the altar was. But he says, no eunuch may enter in, whether it was through an accident or any such thing, and no bastard may enter in either. Only those who could continue to perpetuate Israel's legitimate line as men. The Ammonites and the Moabites were not permitted because of what we read in Numbers 22 through 24. Egyptians and Edomites were allowed, although they were only allowed into that outer court until the third generation, meaning if a man married an Egyptian woman or vice versa, the third generation, if it continued to be Israelites, that child would be considered a full-blooded Israelite. Now, we do not like this idea of somebody being turned away from the house of God, but that is because we are now benefiting from the openness of Jesus Christ. And we've started to take for granted what Jesus has done that in allowing Jews and Gentiles to come to him, the Lord God may exclude whom he wishes. Although, in fact, the Bible is a great story of Moabites like Ruth and eunuchs like the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8 being allowed to come and worship the Lord. We don't have time to read it, but Isaiah 56 has a great passage about the plan that God always had for outcasts like this. And that you've never, you cannot do anything in, under Christ that is going to keep you from coming to the Lord and being accepted and being loved and being able to serve our God. Verse 9 through 14. When you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp, but when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water. And as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it. You shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy, so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. This set of laws is related to warfare. Perhaps this is related to the men that were allowed into the holy place to worship are the same as those that would go out to war. Now, while on campaign, soldiers are, of course, notorious for drinking and gambling and consorting with harlots. And the Lord goes, that is not going to happen among my people. But they must remain righteous and clean at all times. So these verses discuss nocturnal emissions and other bodily functions. And the camp was to be kept clean. Point being, you need to take it outside, fellas. Many, many armies have been wasted and perished because of dysentery or malaria or other sicknesses that can arise from improper sanitation. 
It also was to prevent sexual immorality, that if a man had an emission of semen, is the implication there, that he had to take that outside and stay one night outside of his tent by himself. It was to disincentivize consorting with such women, camp followers they're often called. So to prevent disease, but also to keep the men righteous. Verse 15 to 25. Let's see if we can't get to the end here. There's some other laws here that are going to fly in the face of our modern sentiments. But remember, we're reading God's law. We're getting God's opinion on these things. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. That's one worth underlining. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. So there goes any excuse that the United States had for the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Well, we've got to keep the union together, so we'll make it a law that any slave that escapes has to be brought back to his master by federal authority. And this was the tipping point for an awful lot of abolitionists in the country and even put a lot of people over into that camp because they're like, this is, this is so wrong. If somebody's going to run away, we're going to send them back? So it reminds us that God never permitted Israel to abuse other people, even their slaves. So many people just want to know that the Bible refers to slavery and apply their own ideas to what that is rather than actually read what it says and react to that. And there are many people that want to say, well, Christianity was the religion of the slave owners and the religion of those that oppress. But, you know, I, I've been mentioning this before. I finished reading a biography of Frederick Douglass. He had a very prominent atheist friend that was also an abolitionist that worked with him. And the biographer kept on drawing out that this atheist was constantly working on Frederick Douglass and say, why are you following the Bible for? That's what all the, the Southerners are doing. That's what they're using to justify their slavery. But Douglas was a believer, and he said, but that's not what the Bible says. They're wrong. God's not wrong. And they, the author of the book was very clearly an atheist himself, and he couldn't quite understand that. But, you know, the, the world never does understand what, what God's people do. Never mind the fact that, you know, the Christian way they did it is what actually solved the problem. Verse 17 through 18. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. So this prohibits prostitution, especially for the purpose of the worship of heathen gods. At the time, this was not a shameful thing. To be a harlot in the temple was an honorable thing. But in God's eyes, he's like, get real, guys. This is an abomination. Likewise, in our time, Less and less shame is attached to sex work, especially women who work in pornography. That as crowdfunding has become a thing, that more and more women are beginning to do this, to sell images and videos of their bodies on the internet to make money. That it's some sort of empowering thing, but we've got to remember what the word says. This degrades everybody involved. You are literally putting a price tag on yourself. Well, I'm going to make the money this way, and then I'm going to be able to do good things with it. God says, don't even tithe with that money. I don't want it. God hates that. Verse 19, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Amen. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake and the land that you are entering to take possession of it quickly now. We've talked about this before. They were forbidden to lend on interest to their brother, which is why they hated the tax collectors so much in the Gospels. Jesus told us to be free with our possessions, to help each other. 
That when someone needs help, we don't try to make a profit out of helping them. And of course, we have entire industries that are based upon that. If everybody works hard and everybody is responsible, then everybody tries to help each other, then it's going to work. All will be well. The Lord gives us the ideal and calls us to that. Verse 21, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. Keep your, keep your mouth shut. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. All about vows. Ecclesiastes 5.22. God is in heaven. You're on earth, so shut up. Let your words be few. Now, we live under grace, of course, but I mean, even us as Christians, guys, don't throw out promises to God flippantly, because he just might hold you to that. Anybody ever experienced that yourself? You said, God, I'll do this. And then like, you know, oh, I didn't mean it. And God's like, oh, well, I did. I took it seriously. And I did what I said I was going to do. So we've talked about that before. We'll finish the chapter now. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So this gives a guy permission to eat in a neighbor's field, but not to harvest any of it. This is what the disciples were doing in Matthew 12 on the Sabbath day that got the Pharisees all upset. This law balances the one that we read before, that everybody should lend without interest, that you should be taking care of the poor, but nobody is to be a leech. Nobody is to be mooching off of everybody else, always borrowing, and that's how they live. He says, if you're going to take from somebody's grain or grapes, and you're going to expand this out to money or time or a living space or a car, get what you need and no more. And then work hard to provide for yourself. Now, depending on your perspective, working hard might be offensive to you and lending without interest might be offensive to you. But if both of these people are obeying both of those laws, it'll work out pretty good. We've got to admit that reading the Bible is sometimes difficult because it challenges our thinking. However, in a time as topsy-turvy as the one in which we are living, we need to have a standard to which we can cling. And God's word gives that to us. Psalm 1830 says, as for God, his way is perfect. So whether we're talking about kindness or transgenderism or camp sanitation, we ought to take a stand on the word of God. God doesn't offer us suggestions. He tells us the truth. He gives us the best way to live. And not just the best way, but the right way to live. And especially if we're living in days where we believe that nothing matters and no one knows anything, then you ought to cling to God's word more than ever. You can do a lot worse than trusting nobody but the Lord God. Because his way is true and his way is better.